Last Sunday, I mentioned to you that the outline of this passage is very simple. We essentially have two questions posed to the person of Christ. We have one posed to him by the disloyal Pharisees and Herodians, themselves not a bunch that normally congregated together, but because of their common desire to stand against Jesus, they bind themselves together in an affront to his name by asking him a question about whether or not they should pay a poll tax to Caesar. Jesus answers their question, and last time we looked in depth at the answer to that question. There was a second question asked of Jesus, beginning in verse 18, by some Sadducees, who, obviously, by the way the text speaks itself, don't believe in the resurrection, and yet ask Jesus a very question about resurrection. And Jesus gives them an answer. So you have, very simply stated, a question by one group of naysayers, and Jesus' answer to them, and a second question by another group of naysayers, and his answer to them. You remember what the question and answer was from the Pharisees and Herodians and Jesus himself? They first attempt to butter him up by saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, verse 14, but teach the way of God in truth. Tell us, is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? In other words, their question to Christ is this. If you tell us as Jews, and of course the Herodians weren't Jews, but they were banding together with the Jews to ask him this entrapping question. If you tell us that we are supposed to be loyal to God alone, loyal to Jehovah himself, then why is it that we are supposed to pay taxes with coins that have an inscription upon it that says Caesar is the maximum priest, that Caesar, in essence, is bringing divinity to himself, one who says, I am the true God, and you owe me your money. How can we be loyal to God and yet at the same time pay money to Caesar when he's attempting to ascribe deity to himself? If we indeed pay that tax, aren't we really being disloyal to God? Loyal then to Caesar and his earthly kingdom? But if we refuse to pay this tax to Caesar, this would be God. If we refuse to do anything that he tells us to do, including a tax like this, because of his obvious encroachment upon the true God of the universe, then we'll be perceived as insurrectionists, 
we'll be perceived by the Roman government who gives us the opportunity to worship as those who are the malefactors of this government and therefore we're to be suppressed. So as we might say in the South, we're in a bit of a pickle. What do we do? Now you would assume that if they were to ask a question of this nature, having pure hearts, there might be some level of purity as to their motives and as to the question itself. Look, we want to be loyal to God, and yet we also at the very same time want to be loyal to the government. How are we able to do that? And if these Pharisees are the ones asking the questions, if these are the teachers of the law, then maybe you might assume that their motives are so pure that all they're really wanting to do is ask the question, how can we answer this thorny dilemma so that we can teach our people? But of course we know that's not the case, not because we are like Jesus, omniscient, and can see into the motives of every human being, but we know because the text tells us, even with the buttering up of the Messiah, verse 15 says, but he knowing their hypocrisy. And then he says very plainly to them, why are you testing me? In essence, I know your hearts. I know your motives. And if it were only to be your desire to have this question answered, an honest answer to an honest question, in order to help the people of God, in order to help teach them how they're to balance loyalty to God himself and loyalty to the government, I would otherwise answer your question. But the way it stands now, I know the hypocrisy of your heart and I know you're attempting to test me. Do this. Bring a coin to me. And as I told you last time, it could very well have been, maybe the zealots were standing just a bit far off from this, the zealots not even touching Roman coins, not even wanting to look at the inscription. He may have said, uh, for their sake, hand me the coin, I want to look at it, I want to touch it. Inflaming the zealots, no doubt, to an incredible end. And then he says, marvelously, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's and to God that which is God's. Perfect answer. A plus. Bonus points included. The obvious answer to that question is the balance of loyalty to God and loyalty to governments. It is not automatically disloyal to God to pay taxes, Jesus is saying. And it is not automatically disloyal to the government to pay only those taxes that are due from the government, however excessive we may assume they are. Because Jesus can tell us here that paying taxes, even with a coin that has an inscription to a would-be deity, is not automatically disloyalty to God. If it were, beloved, Jesus would say right at this moment, don't pay those taxes. Don't do it. If that was out of bounds, he would have told us. And later, of course, we know through the revelation of the Word of God to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 13, we are commanded to pay our taxes. 
There's no automatic disloyalty to God by the paying of one's taxes to a civil or maybe a not-so-civil government. The question is always, as Jesus states it here, a rendering to the human authorities under God's ultimate jurisdiction what is due them. And you say, well, what is due them? Anything that God himself doesn't command against. And that which is a loyalty to God, that which is due him, what is due him? Loving him with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. You remember last time I told you the beautiful parallel from this passage in Mark 12 to the passage in Romans 13. There in Mark 12 it says that if we're loyal to God, we can be loyal to the government at the same time. We can love our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we can still pay our taxes because one, in the paying of our taxes, if God commands it so, we are truly loving God. So the issue is always, if we're commanded to do it, we must do it, and we must do it out of a heart of love for God, even if he uses an intermediary called the government. And there in Romans 13, it says that we're to pay our taxes, a command. Again, God using the intermediary of the government, using an instrument to tell us what to do. And through that government, he tells us, pay your taxes. And what he says further is, does the Apostle Paul, owe no man anything, verse 8, but love. Same kind of parallel here. Pay your taxes, love God. Pay your taxes, love God. That's the point. We saw that in detail last time. So at least this day in the Passion Week of Christ, they're not able to entrap him. They're not able to lure him into some kind of uh, wrong answer, some kind of uh, baffling dilemma for which Jesus is not able to extricate himself. No. The issue clearly is the hypocrisy of their heart. Indeed, the issue of disloyalty comes to the very heart of the elite religious leaders of Jesus' day. The hypocrisy is right there. That's the issue that Jesus is pinpointing. And that's the issue he pinpoints with us. And he may even do it, beloved, through the paying of our own taxes. You say, I don't pay my taxes. Because I believe that that's encroaching on my responsibility to be a steward of the money that God has given me. I'm in charge of that. God has put me in charge of that. And no government, civil or otherwise, can force me to do anything other than what I, as the steward of my money, am going to do. Answer? Wrong. God has given the government to us, as Romans 13 says, for the punishment of evildoers. And Peter says in 1 Peter 2, don't be an evildoer, and in that evil doing, say, I'm being persecuted. For there's no grace for those who sin and then are harshly treated. No. Pray for the king. Love the brotherhood. Pay your taxes. The clear command of Scripture. There's no way around it. Now remember I said to you last time, God isn't saying to us, he isn't requiring of us that we pay more taxes than are presently due. I'm not advocating that we give all of our money to the government. Far from it. But in the present taxation system, until it is changed, 
we're commanded to do it. And isn't it interesting in the providence of God that I'm speaking these things just before April 15th? Just amazing, the providence of God. Just in case there were any of you who were, how shall we say it, fudge? No, that's much too charitable. The command is pay your taxes. Pay everything that is required, even if there is a question in your mind, like there is in my mind, like there is in almost everybody's mind, does the IRS really know what they're doing? Until such a day comes that the IRS is abolished and or a different form of taxation is given to us, the command nevertheless is pay your taxes. Now, I didn't say that you couldn't be creative. I hear that laughter. It doesn't mean that you can't be creative. What does creative mean, dear pastor? I shall tell you what it means. It means that even if you have to hire someone who knows what they're doing, because you may not, and I certainly swim in a sea of forms, creative means I do everything the government tells me to do because I want to love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength but I do it in such a way that I do precisely what they're asking me and not a penny more. There's nothing wrong with that. Because then, with the other monies that you have, you can then be the steward of that money, and since God isn't commanding you to do anything else with that overage except that which you give directly to Him, then you can be creative with that money. You can buy what you need. In some cases, God may even give you over even that amount so that you can buy what you desire, as long as your desires are consistent again with what His will is for your life. There is a second question that comes to us in this text, and it comes to us out of the same kind of disloyalty, and this is the disloyalty of the Sadducees. Do you see it there in verse 18? They come to Christ and they ask him a question, and frankly, as you read this text as I did, you say to yourself, how convoluted is this? I mean, it's not just that the Sadducees come to Jesus and they ask him a question about some wife's husband who died and whether or not that wife's husband is going to be waiting for her when she gets to heaven. I mean, it's not even the question that be, could be put in the, the most simple form. They have to ask something that's so outlandish, it may not have ever happened in the world that some relative, some family member, let alone seven of them, had to marry the same woman. Not that that would be a problem if she's a nice woman. <laughs> could very well be a problem if she isn't. But this is so outlandish. It just, it just oozes with the concept of disloyalty, doesn't it? I mean, even Mark tells us right off the bat in this particular section that these Sadducees asked Jesus a question about the resurrection parenthetically when they don't even believe in the resurrection. I mean, you know what's coming next. And by the way, let me tell you a little bit more about these Sadducees. They not only did not believe in the resurrection, but they only really believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, or sometimes called the Torah, the Law. 
And apparently they didn't even believe much of that, frankly. Much of the rest of the Old Testament apparently for them was either speculation or just outright wrong because they questioned everything. And yet the Sadducees were the party that actually was the party for which the high priest was chosen. Now can you imagine what kind of high priest would be high priest? If the Sadducees were in charge and they only believed in the first five books of Moses and they didn't believe in the resurrection and in Acts, it says they don't even believe in angels. Now that's amazing. They come to Jesus with a question about the resurrection which they know will imply something about angels, no doubt, because it's a resurrection into glory and that's where angels are serving God. And yet these Sadducees are asking questions they don't even really believe themselves. It's obvious what's going on here. I love what William Hendrickson says. He says, The crass materialism of the Sadducees was as repugnant to the heart of Jesus as was the pompous ceremonialism and loveless legalism of the Pharisees. You know, it really doesn't matter what garb is circling around these people. The inside is always the same. What they're really after is to ridicule Jesus. They want to even ridicule Jesus' belief in the afterlife. Can you believe that? You say, yes, I can believe it because there are a lot of present-day Sadducees out in the world who want to criticize and ridicule your belief and my belief in the afterlife. You ever talk to some of those people? It's an amazing conversation, isn't it? And it's just by virtue, their ridicule, of you saying, I believe in an afterlife. I believe in a heaven and a hell, and I believe people are going there. And then watch the sneers and the snickers. It's amazing. And apparently even Jesus himself is not inoculated in this sinful world from the ridicule of those who don't even believe in a resurrection, don't even believe in angels, don't even believe in the bulk of the Old Testament, and yet are still asking Jesus a question about these things. They wanted to try and make him look foolish, asking him a ridiculous question, question about seven husbands of a woman and whose she'll be in heaven. But Jesus turns around and has an indictment of them because he says, if they really did believe the first five books of Moses, and I love this part of it. I mean, Jesus speaks to them out of what they say they believe, not what they say they don't believe. You know, it would be enough if Jesus were to uh, quote something out of the Pentateuch, but he goes right to the very book of Moses. It's right to the place where they say they absolutely believe and would die for the truth contained in the Pentateuch. He goes right to it. And he says to them, verse 24, Is this not the reason you are mistaken that you do not understand the Scriptures or the power of God? Well, what an indictment. Lord, deliver all of us from the powerful words of Jesus Christ saying to someone here, is it not the reason you are mistaken that you do not understand the Scriptures or the power of God? Jesus said to them, verse 25, For when they rise from the dead, who's the they? The, day, the they is a reference to the husbands and the woman. 
when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. What's he saying? Well, the reality is this. Death is a part of this life. And because death is a part of this life, there needs to be procreation so that life could be regenerated again. In other words, if everybody died without procreation, there wouldn't be any of us anymore. And so there's a need in this life for marriage to occur so that procreation could occur, so that life could regenerate itself in God's providence. But Jesus' point is, in heaven there is no death. And if there is no death in heaven, there is therefore no need for marriage because there is no death. There is no need for children in heaven in that sense, for children to be born, because there is no death. And if there is no death, we live forever, and if we live forever, there's no reason for marriage. Now, I know that some people are very chagrined and discouraged about a verse like this because people want to say, won't I know my married partner in heaven? Or won't I know who I was married to? Or maybe sometimes people will even say, some of the single variety, uh, will I know if I was to be married in this life? Say my life was to be cut off short. Lord, what was the plan? Well, of course, the answer to that question is if your life was cut short, it really wasn't cut short because in the providence of God, he had a plan and that plan didn't include your marriage. But even for those who say, well, I know my marriage partner in heaven, will I be able to walk with them and talk with them and uh, pray to God with them? Will I be able to rejoice and worship God with them? What will that day be like in heaven? Won't I know the person I'm married to now? You know what the answer to that question is? None of us know that. None of us really know that. But if there's really an insight to be given from this passage, it might be this. Rather than being concerned about your marriage partner in heaven, I think we'll all be gazing into the beautiful face of Jesus Christ and probably won't be concerned about what happened in this life, save one thing, the cross. I mean, the issue for us, beloved, may be a concern about whether or not we'll know our married person in heaven now, but since we don't know heaven, what heaven will be like, we'll probably be saying to ourselves in heaven, I'm only concerned about Jesus Christ. He's my lover, my Lord, he's my leader, he's my master, he's my savior, he's everything to me, I don't need anything else. Marriage in this life is wonderful, it's the grace of life, Peter calls it. But it stops, and it should stop. There's no need for marriage in heaven, the angels don't engage in it. And I think Jesus probably threw that in just for their sake, don't you? Look, you tell me that you don't believe in the resurrection, I'm going to one-up you, angels aren't given in marriage. They don't marry anybody there, and you don't even believe in them either, do you? And you know, this is such a, such a silly thing in one sense. I mean, sometimes you read this, and of course sometimes you might say of yourself, you know, I'm a pretty sharp person, and you know, if I'm going to be asking Jesus a penetrating question, I might try to do it with a question that really has some, some moxie, some sense, some understanding behind it. Because if I say that I affirm the Pentateuch, if I say I affirm the first five books of Moses, if I come to Jesus with a question, I better make sure that that question isn't covered in those five books, right? And what does Jesus do? He goes right to the point. He says, look, if God is powerful, and if the Pentateuch says he's powerful, if the Pentateuch alludes to the fact that God is able to raise people from the dead, 
if God is able to take the Egyptians and drown them in the Red Sea, if God is able to bring ten plagues on the Egyptians themselves, if God is powerful to do all of that, don't we assume that God could raise a body from the dead? Don't we assume that if God killed a million or more Egyptians, either their soldiers or their city, or in toto all of those who are disobedient to God and preserve a million people called the Jews, and if he can throw ten plagues that only God can do, and if he's so powerful to do all of those things, if he's so powerful, if you read in the first five books of Moses how they worked through the wilderness and he gave them miraculous food called manna, if he can do all of that, don't I believe that God can raise a person from the dead? Come on. All you have to do is read the first five books of Moses and know that we could serve a God like that. This is, in essence, an inane question. I mean, wouldn't Jesus is saying, your understanding of the Scriptures be filled out if you could trust God, believe God, understand that God could raise people from the dead by looking at all of the evidences that God has already done miraculously in the world. Of course. Of course. That's probably why they call them sad, you see. You like that, huh? I borrowed that from a young Sunday school time. I mean, here is Abraham. I mean, look, if there was ever anybody who the Sadducees could look at, Abraham, and if you were a Sadducee of the highest order, maybe you were the high priest, and you were looking at the life of Abraham, and if you saw that Abraham was the father of the faithful, and even though they didn't have the privilege of reading what we read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19, you would still know it even if you just knew about Abraham's life. And what does it say about Abraham in Hebrews eleven nineteen? Well, it says about his son Isaac that even though God commanded him to kill his own son, he believed that if he were to do it, that God could and would raise Isaac from the dead. Boy, what faith. What confidence. What affirmation of the power of God. I mean, look, if you're going to kill your own son, the one in whom God said all of the nations of the earth would be blessed, and if you knew that by killing him there was any opportunity for that promise not to be fulfilled, and yet you overruled that in your own mind by faith in God, believing that even if you killed him, God could raise him from the dead, don't you think that a Sadducee reading what Abraham was doing could believe God that he could raise someone from the dead? Of course! course. You know what's going on here? As I said last time, disloyalty in the heart. That's what's happening. Look, if you're disloyal to God, then that means by very virtue of the meaning of that phrase, you're going to begin to disbelieve God. And when you disbelieve God, because you're not loyal to God, then you begin to doubt what God can do. And when you begin to doubt what God can do, then you say to yourself, just like Satan said to Eve, can God do this? Will he do this? Surely he will not. And then by that time, if you're listening to that kind of language, you've already succumbed. Boy, they, they are sad. 
God can raise the dead? Couldn't they believe, like Abraham, that God could give, could give life a living seed? I mean, all they would have to do is look at Abram's life and say, this old man, and I can say that because there aren't very many 90-year-olds year or 100-year-olds in our congregation, this old man, this man's going to have a living seed in his old body. You could talk to Sarai, 90-year-old, you could say, Sarai, this living seed is going to be put in you and you're going to have a baby. And what did she do? She laughed. Why? Because she didn't believe that it was possible. And why is Abraham called the father of the faith? Because he believed God. He believed that God could do it. And if an older man could believe that God could place within him a living seed, miraculously so, not just by his providence, but miraculously so, because by way of providence, or on human terms, he was too old to be the progenitor of children. It wasn't going to happen. But God could do it miraculously so. He could take in that old body, put new life in that body. And Abram and Sarai could produce it. To which there's no fitting response but to change their names. Avraham, Sarah. And if you're a Sadducee, and if you believe in those books, just read them and believe them. That's the point. That's what Jesus is saying. You don't understand the scriptures or the power of God. You don't understand what you're reading because you have a hard heart, a hypocritical heart, and you don't believe what you're reading, and therefore you cannot, you will not see God's power. And yet, in those Sadduceic days, if we could use it adjectivally, they saw the power of God because they were seeing the very power of God incarnate. They were seeing Jesus himself. Why is it difficult to believe in the power of God when you were seeing Jesus Christ himself in the flesh? Why disbelieve when you can see the Messiah for yourself? Well, isn't that different? Isn't that different from what we might grapple with today? We might say, can I believe God for this or that? Can I trust him for this and that? Without faith, it is impossible to please God, but he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Yes, I can believe God for that, but if I were standing in the very presence of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, God incarnate himself, would I not be able, when I saw the miracles with my own eyes, especially as a professing religious elite person, would I not be able to understand the scriptures and affirm the power of God? Of course, yes, a thousand times yes. And that's why I think in verse 27, Jesus says, you are greatly mistaken. Greatly mistaken. Why? Why are they greatly mistaken? Beloved, it's as simple as this. If you deny the Scripture, and if you disbelieve and reject the power of God, it's as great a mistake as you can make. There's no way to make a greater mistake. Who could make a greater, more damning mistake than to deny the Scripture and what it says about a powerful God? And if that weren't enough, 
Jesus gives his own lesson, and it's marvelous. Look at verse 26. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, even though I don't have to answer your question, I will. I'll talk to you about the theology of resurrection. I'm going to tell you what it means. Regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. What does he mean by that? When did God speak in the burning bush to Moses when did he do that? Was it after the death of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? Was it after the death? Yes. And when God was referring in the burning bush incident to those three men, did he say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Did he say, I was, past tense? No, that's the whole point. When God spoke, he was speaking present tense. Although their bodies were in a grave, he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am presently, which implies what? They are alive. They're alive. They're not dead. God is not the God of the dead, but a God of the living. Does that give you an encouragement if you know Christ? You may die. In fact, the Bible says you will die unless Christ comes first. You will die. It is appointed for man once to die, and then comes the judgment. If you die before Jesus Christ returns, don't fear. The only thing that's happening is the decaying, decrepit body that you and I are housed within will fall away. Our spirit, our soul remains alive. In fact, it remains alive for every person, believer or unbeliever alike. Paul himself said that if you are absent from the body, you are what? Present with the Lord. That's true. It's a fact. And God, through Christ, is making the ultimate point that even though people die, they are yet alive. They're alive. You know, I've often said, look, if I were up in an airplane, and sometimes I've gone through great turbulence. I remember going through an airplane ride one time to none other than Lynchburg, Virginia. And it was one of those puddle jumpers. It's the one where a lot of people say, I'm not ever riding in one of those things. As though, percentage-wise, those things are more dangerous than the other. It just seems like that because you're going like this all the time. And I remember trying to read some things. And I remember a big headache because I couldn't read it because this turbulence was taking us all around. And the captain kept saying to us, there were about three people in there. And I thought... Oh, this is a novel experience. And if I were to die at that very moment, I was thinking to myself, what would this experience for me be? And the answer is novelty. That's all that it is. Because if my body is slain through the providence of God by a crash of an airplane, that's not really me. And thank God if you've looked at my body lately. It's not really me. The truest part of me is what Dr. Z rightly calls the mission control center. That's my heart, my mind, my soul, my spirit, my conscience, my will, my emotions, my affections. All of that is one entity, and that's the immaterial part of me. And that's who I really am. That's what I think with. That's what I feel with. That's who I am. This 
body isn't completely unimportant, but it's not as important as the immaterial part of me. Why? Because that part is the part that will live forever. And when God says, if he were to say about me, I am the God of Lance Quinn. I am the God of Abraham. I'm not was. I have a living, vital, present relationship with those patriarchs. And boy, if that shouldn't have sliced into the wicked, hard, hypocritical heart of the Sadducees, wait a minute, he's catching us up short. We're done. We submit our wills. That's what we should do. Jesus is teaching us right out of the very books that we say we affirm. How come we're not listening? Well, that's what sin does. That's what unbelief does. That's what happens when people disbelieve the Scripture and the power of God. Which really brings us to our concluding questions. What are the implications of this for us? I mean, it's one thing for me to hear about Pharisees and Herodians and Sadducees, and I can't relate to all of those, but I'm needing to ask questions of the text for my own life, and what are those questions? Well, number one, number one, where does your loyalty lie? Do you submit to God when He commands it? Do you take the concept of loyalty seriously? You know, in an age of so-called rugged individualism, do you see a transcendent reality that you must obey God and God's appointed rulers? You know, it would be a great time, frankly, for you to contact the IRS if you've not already done so. And if it's the case with you to be able to say before God, because I love him with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, I know for a fact, even though you don't, that I have not fully been revealing about my taxes or I've not paid my taxes at all, and I'm contacting you, and I want you to tell me what is my next move. Beloved, that's loyalty to God. That's loyalty. Malachi says, will a man rob God? Oh, it may be true that the IRS might not know about you, but God does. How loyal are you to Him and His appointed leaders? Are you committed to the principle that if the government isn't asking you to disobey a clear command of God in Scripture, that you willingly and lovingly submit to that government? And that's the idea. And the only time that you disobey is like Peter and the apostles in Acts 5, when clearly they said, don't preach, when God commands you to preach, and then you say, we must obey God rather than man. That's simple. Sometimes it may not be so simple, but at least in terms of what God's revelation is to us about taxes, it is quite simple. I love what David Garland says. We as Christians may hold citizenship in heaven, but that does not exempt us from being exemplary citizens on earth. Jesus does not call us to disengage from the world, nor does He confer, with us, uh, nor does he confer us with special status that allows us to escape its obligations. Christians may be free from the law, but we are not free from civil law designed to promote order. Implication number two. What does God tell us to do in relation to our government? Well, read Romans 13, verses 1 to 8. Read that. 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 3. Titus 3, 1 to 3. 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17. I know, I went through that too fast. Select the tape. You say, why? Because this is an issue for which we need to study. Look at those passages. 
Find out what the obligation of God through the government is for you as a believer and obey those commands. Thirdly, and finally, what about the question that Jesus poses to the Sadducees that is related to our own knowledge of Scripture? Do you understand the Scripture? Do you understand the power of God? Do you study the Scripture? If you were to say to someone, yes, I believe that the Bible is true, yes, I believe that the Bible is to be obeyed, do you know the Bible? Do you understand the Scripture with a view toward obedience to its injunctions and prohibitions? Beloved, this is a great implication question from our text. Does Jesus say about us, do you understand the Scripture? Even for a believer, the question for us is, how well do I understand the Scripture so as to obey what it says? You see, if you look hard enough, you'll find golden kernels that are so terribly convicting from every page of Holy Scripture. The challenge for the believer is very evident. Pay your taxes, be loyal to God and government, where it is at all possible, understand the Scripture and the power of God. Let's pray together. Father, we do. We want to. We want to be loyal to you. And yet we want to be loyal to the government that you yourself have ordained. And we know, Father, that there will be times when our government may very well ask us to do things that you have expressly forbidden. And it would be at that time, like the apostles of old, that we would say we must disobey the government. But until that comes, we want to be obedient, we want to be righteous servants, we want to pray for our government, we want to pay our taxes, we want to do what is right. And Lord... We want to understand the Scriptures. We want to obey the Scripture. We want, to, we want to see the power of God, and even if this might not be a time when we, with our own eyes, see resurrection from the dead, we, like Peter, can say, nonetheless, though you have not seen Him, you love Him, and though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him. And even though we have not seen you visibly, Christ, we believe in you. We believe you. And for us, it is a joy inexpressible and full of glory because we believe and we have seen the power of God in our own salvation. Lord, thank you for giving us this look. And may you challenge us afresh to understand you and obey you. In Jesus' name. Amen.